Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. This podcast is sponsored by Llama Naturals. I learned about Llama Naturals a few months ago, and I honestly wish someone had told me about them sooner. I always recommend that people get their vitamins from whole food sources, not synthetics. But I could never find a good option for my kids until I found Llama Naturals. They have a full line of delicious gummies that are made with real fruit, no added sugar or sweeteners, plus vitamins from whole foods. They are USDA organic, vegan, gluten-free, and allergen-free. Plus, they are seriously delicious. You can save 20% off your first order by going to llamanaturals.com and using the coupon code JUST. J-U-S-T. My whole family loves them, but if you have a picky eater, they offer a money-back guarantee. Seriously, you should at least go to their site and compare their label against any other gummy brand out there. They are the best I've found. Again, it's llamanaturals.com. A diplomat of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Dr. Suzanne Gilberg-Lenz, received her medical degree in 1996 from the USC School of Medicine and completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Gilbert Lenz is involved in women's empowerment and public education and appears frequently as an expert in women's health and integrative medicine on TV, in print, and online. She completed her clinical Ayurvedic specialist degree at California College of Ayurveda in 2010 and was board certified in integrative and holistic medicine in 2008. Dr. Gilbert Lenz has appeared on Today, CNN, Headline News, The Steve Harvey Morning Show, and The Dr. Oz Show. Dr. Gilbert Lenz is co-founder of Cedars-Sinai's Medical Center's Green Committee and is deeply committed to the promotion of healing that involves individuals, families, communities, and the planet. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really excited for our guest because she is going to tell us all things about hormones and menopause, and I know a lot of you listeners have some of these questions. And so I'm really excited to talk to her today. So thank you, Dr. Gilbert Lenz, for being here today. Thanks for having me. Will you first start by telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an MD. I'm a medical doctor. I'm board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, which means I did a residency for four years in OPGYN and women's health. Um, I'm also board certified in integrative and holistic medicine, and I'm trained in uh, Ayurveda. I'm a clinical Ayurvedic specialist, which means that I trained in the ancient medicinal system of India. I think most people are familiar with acupuncture and Chinese medicine. This is the Indian system, Ayurveda. So I do practice in a fully conventional setting in Beverly Hills. I was trained at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. I'm still on attending staff there. I work with residents and midwives and colleagues and um, see patients still full-time in my office, um, full spectrum mostly at this point. But um, I do have this background that affords me sort of a, a different perspective and a wider and deeper toolkit. Additionally, um, I'm a member of the North American Menopause Society and my focus obviously in the recent uh, past and presently has been in menopause and in the menopausal transition. So we'll talk more. I mean, I don't want to go on and on with my bio. It's not that interesting. <laughs> oh, well, it is. You're definitely an expert. That is for sure. And so that's why we brought you on today. So let's just start at the very beginning and the very basics. 
because I want to talk about menopause. If you haven't known listeners, that's what I want to ask her about. So why don't you tell my listeners what menopause really is? That is such a great question. And I always try to start with that definition because I do find that the terminology is kind of bandied about and then people really don't know what is going on, what they're talking about, what we're talking about. So menopause has a very, very clear medical explanation. Now I want to place a caveat there though. It's not a medical issue per se. It's not a disease. And I really want to emphasize that I talk a lot about that in general. And in the book, I talk about it. Um, It's not a pathology. It's not a disease. It's a developmental physiologic stage. So that framework is extremely important. Having said that, the definition from the medical perspective is it's one day of your life. It's when you get to 12 complete months without any menstrual bleed over the age of 45 in a person who doesn't have a medical reason that might have caused that that to happen. Like a hysterectomy, you don't have a uterus anymore. Or you had um, an ablation, the lining of your uterus was destroyed. Or you had cancer or chemotherapy, or you actually have some other medical issue like thyroid disorder that might be causing the abnormality. So we have to exclude those other abnormalities. But like I like to tell my patients, if you come into my office at around the age of 50 and you haven't had a period for a year, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, not a zebra. <laughs> that is a that is a, a medical aphorism. We use that one all the time. Okay, well, that's good to know. So this is what I'm curious, though, about. How do women know if they're nearing menopause? That's a great question, and it's a, a very difficult question for people to um, grapple with because a lot of it is, like I said, clinically based, and I think people are getting a lot of information that is questionable. Um, And I I will just jump right into this whole hormone testing thing. There isn't a test right now that's available commercially that's going to tell you or predict when you will go into menopause. Now, there are some tests out there that might help predict. They're not widely available um, or they're not, they're widely available, but they're not widely in use at this point. And I think that's because the data is emergent. And also I think because in medicine, we, we respond slowly to information. We don't make radical shifts in how we deal with things clinically without a lot of data. And some of that's great and some in conservative in a good way. And some of it's not that test is the anti-malarian hormone test. People may know about that because it's used in the context of in vitro fertilization, specifically in fertility and a lot of people are using it now to predict predict fertility, which is actually not what it's designed for or validated for scientifically. But it turns out in some of the very large trials, uh, notably something called the STRAW uh, trial, that you can probably predict within a couple of years, you know, so not, this is not, uh, you know, um, who is going to go into menopause based on anti-malarian hormone. And what that's looking at is it's a proxy for what we call ovarian reserve. It has to do with ovarian function, which is, of course, what causes menopause. In menopause, what's happening is you are no longer releasing eggs, you're no longer ovulating, and you are no longer fertile. This is not a value judgment. I'm not saying anything cultural. This is just like a biologic fact. So I'm answering in a very long-winded roundabout way, but there isn't a way to know. The way to know is you're in the age group and you're experiencing changes, which I'm sure you're going to want to talk about. 
that are uh, fairly widespread, uh, somewhat predictable, uh, actually predictable in their unpredictability. And it's a clinical issue. It's an issue to address because A, you want to be in the present moment in the most comfortable way that you can. And B, in order to look at how to age in the most healthy way. So what are the lifestyle changes? What are the medical issues that you may face going forward? And if we know that you're heading in that direction, we can help create more health for you today and for tomorrow. That, that to me is the main reason sh people should be focusing. I think if people look at this as an expiration date, I really would love for them to reframe that. I, I think that's an unfortunate narrative that we've been fed and we don't have to own that narrative. We don't expire until we actually expire, <laughs> you know? Right. Okay. So you just talked about changes. So changes occur before menopause, correct? In that yes. perimenopause timeframe? Yes. So what yes. are some of those changes that people could look for during perimenopause? Yeah. Um, one of the earliest signs that we see in a lot of people, and, and here's the thing that's interesting, Caroline, like <clears throat> there are certain things that are, like I said, they're predictable and they're unpredictability. That doesn't mean that everybody is going to have the same experience. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to have the same symptoms, but the issues that we see in large majority of people, like probably about two thirds, um, will see changes in their menstrual cycle. Again, this isn't someone who's having a menstrual cycle. What if you have an IUD? What if you're on the pill? I mean, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. And it's actually really important to, to discuss because not everybody's coming into this in the, with the same experience. But if you are menstruating on a regular basis, you will probably notice that your cycle changes. In other words, perhaps it will get the periods, the bleeding will get closer together. The intervals will get shorter. The bleeding quality may change. A lot of women will start to experience much heavier bleeding. Then you get into skipping more often and until you finally are just not having a period. And I can't tell you how many people come in at four months or six months and thinks it's it and it's, it's not it. They get a period again. So bleeding pattern changing is a big one. I think the classic hot flash or what we call vasomotor symptoms, night sweats, all these are kind of categorized together. Those are pretty, pretty uh, prominent for a lot of people. And early on, people may notice that they're getting a very a big change in their premenstrual situation. For some people, it is premenstrual syndrome. In other words, it's really bothersome to them. They may start to have those hot flashes at night in the four, five, six days before their period. Um, or they may notice that they have really intense, intense mood symptoms leading up to their cycle where maybe they didn't notice anything at all, or it was one or two days. Maybe now it's from ovulation until they bleed for 10 days or 14 days. Or I just noted, I noted that you might have a very irregular cycle. What if you have a 70 day cycle and you're feeling like you're PMSing for 40 days? I hear that one a lot. And, and in particular, I'll hear new onset anxiety and panic, which mm -hmm. I think is really important. Um, it has a very different quality. And I think this is where people often kind of get misdiagnosed as having a mood disorder. And whether or not you're treating it that way, I think is really up to you as long as the context is provided. You know what oh, I'm saying? Interesting. Like, yeah, I, joint pain, frozen shoulder is like a classic, classic perimenopausal joint issue. Um, but joint pain in, in general weight changes, metabolism changes, lower metabolism, easier to gain weight, gaining weight in the midsection. Some of the less common things that people may know about are weird, like dry eyes, dry mouth, burning mouth, 
vaginal dryness and sexual changes. I mean, I could go on and making it sound really great, right? Um, (laughs) Exactly. I was like, oh, this does not sound fun at all. Well, it's not fun if you're not prepared and if you don't have a team or, or support to help you get through it. It isn't fun at all if you're left on your own. You know, and we would never do this with a, a 10 year old who's about to enter puberty. We don't do that to 10. That's cruel. Right. But that's what we've been doing with women. So right. we're changing that by having the conversation. Exactly. Okay. Obviously, all these things are happening because of hormonal changes. So, what hormone right. changes are occurring during that perimenopause time? I mean, a lot. You know, this is where I wish I had a graphic, right? So, maybe some of you remember from middle school health class that kind of that graph of what the, of the menstrual cycle. And just so you know, when your gynecologist calls it the menstrual cycle, we're talking about the whole thing, not just when you bleed. So there is usually a very predictable once you are in your, while you're in your reproductive years, when you're menstruating, there's a relatively predictable uh, experience. You start to develop, there's a, people need to understand that their brain and their ovaries and their uterus are talking. I mean, I'm really simplifying it here. But your brain is signaling to your ovary, okay, hey, let's pick an egg to release so that we can get pregnant. And the hormones work in concert. There's a lot of them. There's estrogen, there's progesterone, there's testosterone, there's the brain hormones, follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone. Um, They are working to select one area, what's going to develop a follicle. That's where the egg is going to be released from. It gets big enough. It releases, you ovulate. Now progesterone is produced in the ovary. When you don't conceive, all of those levels go down and you release the lining that you have been building up with estrogen in the first half of the cycle. So roughly speaking, estrogen is very important in the first half, progesterone coming from the ovary itself in the second half. As you start to get into your middle years, there's a little, there's a derangement of that relationship. People are not talking to each other in the same way that they were, people, hormones. And things start to change, which is why your cycle changes, why you may or may not ovulate, why you may ovulate earlier or later in the cycle. And after ovulation, you may not be producing the same amount of progesterone. So I can't say to you, and I think this is where people really get into trouble out there when they want to test their hormones. What are you testing? This stuff is varying all day, every day. There are circadian rhythms, there are cyclic rhythms, and then there are rhythms that are now in transition. I think when we start calling it balance versus imbalance, that's also putting a value judgment on it. This is not abnormal. If you're 32, this is abnormal. If you are 47, this is normal. This isn't a balance issue. It's a change in the relationship and the ratios of these hormones that are causing these symptoms. So we can dig in a little further. You know, Bleeding issues tend to be because you may be producing more estrogen than progesterone. Now, what's interesting about this is that we know that estrogen is declining during this time of your life, but it's again, the ratios of estrogen to progesterone that cause an elevation relative to progesterone of the estrogen. You're producing more lining of your uterus, you're gonna bleed more heavily or bleed irregularly and spot. On the other hand, the second half of the cycle would have been dominated by progesterone after you ovulate. And when we see declining levels of progesterone, that probably is contributing to the mood stuff that we feel, the anxiety, the panic. So it's all about the relationships. When when we look at, for instance, people all of a sudden get acne again. They haven't had acne since they were a teenager, or maybe they never had acne. And it's clearly hormonal acne, right? It's that, you know, like chin kind of thing around the nose. 
that stuff. That's because the predominant hormone in women is testosterone. We make more testosterone in our younger years than any other hormone. We don't make as much as men, but we make more testosterone than estrogen. Well, the testosterone will decline in your middle years as well. But if estrogen is falling faster and further, now you have more testosterone. Now you have stimulation of the glands in your face. Now you have more acne. So you can see, I could go on and on, but it's all about relationship and proportions. So interesting. So I'm going to ask you some specifics about some of these symptoms you just talked about. But I'm curious, are these symptoms mainly during perimenopause or after menopause? Do you experience these as well? Great question. I mean, I think that the worst symptoms for people are in that perimenopausal period, which by the way, peri is just the Latin term for around. So I make the joke all the time. If you're a menopause expert, everything is perimenopause, right? So, because that's a really ill-defined term as well. And people, they also feel like it's like, oh, you just like, you know, you pointed me out. I'm shamed. You just told me I'm in perimenopause. I mean, I, I, again, I would love for people to hear that a little bit differently. But having said that, peri could be two to 10 years. I mean, it could be longer. It's again, it's that transitional time. That I find is when people really have the hardest time because of the unpredictability, especially if you are very keyed into your cycle. I had a patient yesterday who is 48 and she said it so clearly and so beautifully to me. She said, I have been so body literate. I have worked so hard in my life to be body literate and I have no idea what's going on now. And she was really having a hard time, not only with the symptoms, but this this loss of this feeling of control because she thought, oh, I know who I am. This is who I am this seven days of the month. This is who I am this 14 days of the month. Oh my God, who am I? I'm not that person anymore. So it's it's deep, right? It's not right. just the symptoms people feel, it's the response to the change in the symptoms. I find that to be the most difficult time. Once people are in the menopause, so they have passed that 12 months and they're either menopausal or postmenopausal, whatever you want to call it, it's a lot easier. There are symptoms that can persist though, Caroline. And so th- those things can be bothersome to a lot of people. The hot flashing can continue for quite some time for a lot of people. And then the ongoing loss of estrogen specifically can continue to be an issue for people in terms of joint pain, loss of muscle mass, um, weight and metabolism, sleep, and also the longer term issues with sexual function, urinary tract issues, vaginal dryness, and then health consequences, heart disease, osteoporosis, dementia, and Alzheimer's. I say these things again, not to scare people, but to help them locate some agency in all of this. If they know that these things are going to become an issue, they can anticipate strategies to manage and diminish those risks. Yeah, That's what's important to me. Right. I agree. Okay. So let's clear up something for the listeners because menopause is the one day after 12 months of no bleeding. Yeah. But a lot of people will say, in their 50s, 60s, oh, I'm in menopause, so I'm having hot flashes. But really, they're not in menopause, they're in post-menopause, correct? If they're totally done, they're post-menopausal, or you could call it the menopause phase. Here's the thing, I'm not here to argue with people about words. I just want them to, because I I feel like, especially as, as an expert and as a physician, I mean, my job is to help people get through this and to, I consider myself a healer, 
And it's not healing to be like, you're using the words wrong. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's why I also use terms like bioidentical hormones. I mean, is that a medical term? I mean, technically it's not, but do your audiences, you, do people understand that term? Yeah, they do. So I use it because my job is to be a bridge and to speak the language. So I think you're right. I, I think, I think people are using the term loosely and it's interesting because to me, when I hear people say menopause, I think, I think they mean more the transitional time. I don't know. I guess what the, the great idea here is to ask, what do you mean by that? Like what's going on with you? Right. That to me, for me, what I'm, that's what I do for a living is to help understand where you're coming from so I can meet you there and then help you get to where you want to be. I mean, it's really not that complicated. Right. I just wanted to clarify it because some women don't know the exact differences. So I just wanted to clarify that. But now, because you are a healer, that's actually what I want to talk to you about. Some of these common things that you hear about in menopause, hot flashes. So you touched on it a little bit, but are there natural ways or ways to help women that are dealing with hot flashes? Yeah, there are. I mean, the, the gold standard, honestly, the most effective way to to manage hot flashes is with hormone therapy. Um, And we can dig into that when you're ready. But there are, I think, some good natural remedies out there um, because I am trained in in Ayurvedic herbalism and I understand botanical medicine. I'm really a big fan. And I actually, I'm a breast cancer survivor. So my choice has been to not use hormones in that way um, because of my particular medical issues. Uh, Having said that, you know, you you can never, the, the data that is, pharma derived is just way more robust. There's way larger numbers involved in studying effects and efficacy and and all that stuff than there's ever going to be in a botanical study. But so I'm always very like clear about that. I want people to understand like you can't put black cohosh head to head with estrogen. It's just not possible. But black cohosh is actually one of the herbs that I do think has has decent data to support its use. Um, One of my newer Favorites is something called French marine pine bark, also known as pycnogenol. I really like that one a lot. Um, the, what we call phytoestrogens, which are uh, molecules that behave somewhat like estrogen that are from the directly from the plant world. So I think people probably know something about red clover or um, the soy-based products. Those can be decent. They're not as great, but they can really reduce and diminish the impact. So if you're looking at, you know, a 50% uh, reduction in hot flashes in a person who's hot flashing all night, I mean, that can be a game changer. And right. a lot of people will choose to start with those and, and really see, uh, see a real big benefit. I will say this, it's really, really important to be very careful about the source of your plant medicine. Uh, just because something is on Amazon doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's safe, doesn't mean it even has what it says it has. I'm very clear about product safety and um, vendors that I like, and people can go to my website and see all that information or buy the book. I'm very, very, very clear about that. That's so good. I am too. And so I think our listeners, my listeners will understand that, that I talk about it with (laughs) CBD quite often that there's a huge difference between the ones on the market and don't just grab something off Amazon because you're not quite sure of the sourcing, things like that. So um, I love that. Okay. With hot flashes, I once heard that if you're low in magnesium, that could be a root cause of hot flashes. Is that true? Magnesium and B-complex can definitely help. I mean, I think to be perfectly honest, like, look, if you have nutritional uh, deficits, which a lot of us do, and I think what happens is we end up in a more vulnerable position when we're in a transition. 
Um, whereas maybe like you got away with some nutritional deficits that you weren't even aware of. Now they're going to, you're vulnerable. You're going to like really start feeling them. That might be helpful to you. I, I think it's probably not going to be enough for somebody who's like really having a lot of hot flashes. And some of the other like vitamin E has been looked at some of the omega threes. The data is like, okay, it's not great. It's not going to hurt you, but right. it, it's probably not going to be enough. Okay. Good to know. Let's talk about decreased libido. So why does this happen? And are there ways to improve these symptoms? Yeah, I mean, this is such a big one. First of all, libido is not an on-off switch. It is not yes, no. It's it's complicated. There absolutely is, as our hormones are declining, our drive towards sex definitely declines. And we we do know that testosterone does play a role in that, but there's it's also multifactorial. So I touched on the fact that estrogen decline will contribute to changes in the vaginal tissue, for instance. If you have dryness and pain with sex, if you are not having the same kind of orgasm or an orgasm anymore, you're not going to really want to have sex. If it hurts, why would you want to have it? There's other things. There's social factors. Do you have a partner? Do you like your partner? Have you been with your partner forever? Is it kind of boring? Is it stressful? Or do you have you know, adult, like older adult relatives that you're caring for and kids in the house is work crazy. Did you just go through a pandemic for three years? You know, like I, we can't really say it's all perimenopause and menopause, but it contributes, it contributes. And I'll tell you that I think one of the biggest factors is not addressing the, the tissue changes and also, you know, the very unsexy activity of having to, um, in a long-term relationship, make it a priority. It's not like you see the person down the hall and you know, you're wet. Okay. Like if you're, that's you great, amazing. But for a lot of people, that's not what's happening anymore. And they, you need to communicate with your partner. You need to have a conversation about needs and changing needs. And you need to commit to it and say, you know, Thursday night is our night or Sunday afternoon is our time. And what we know is that when people have an activity that they enjoy, they will be more motivated to do it. And it changes brain chemistry. You know, you have dopamine, you have serotonin, you have anticipation, which will actually assist and help in the process. So it's 100% fixable. I mean, there's so many things we can do. We can, Whether it's vaginal hormones, which by the way, are safe for people who can't or don't want to have systemic absorption. They don't want the hormones throughout their body, but they want it vaginally. It's totally safe. That can be helpful. Um, pelvic floor physical therapy and sexual health practices like sex therapy can be, be very helpful for pain. And also there are devices, energy-based devices, a lot of which we've borrowed from cosmetic surgery and from aesthetics that can help replace and replenish collagen, uh, elastin, and help to uh, regenerate uh, healthy youngish tissue in the area, which can help with dryness and, and function. There's so much to be done. Interesting. Okay. So the vaginal hormones, are those bioidentical hormones? Well, I mean, all different kinds exist. Pharma and FDA do make bioidentical approved substances. So bioidentical, let's talk about that definition. Um, as I mentioned, it's really a marketing term, but what it means is by the, the chemical is biologically identical to what your body was making in larger amounts before you got to this place in life. That's all it means. And by the way, these are all chemicals. I had a conversation yet again with a patient yesterday but she didn't want chemicals. And I was like, okay, I hear you. You understand that like actually the, that coffee in your cup is a chemical. So people are understandably, I know what they mean. They want natural, 
the natural hormones are, you, you, I'm going to take your ovary, which I'm not doing. That's murder. <laughs> like you do not, you did not consent to that. So it's not natural or not natural. It's synthesized. It's produced in a manufacturing plant to look, behave and act exactly the way your hormones that you were making were. So that's what bioidentical is. Bioidentical is available by prescription, by made by pharma, FDA approved. You can pick it up at your pharmacy that your doctor prescribes to. So that's really, really important to understand. I stick with the bioidenticals. I like them better. I think the data is stronger. I think they are safer. That doesn't mean there's no risk involved in any of this. But the vaginal hormones, most of them, not all of them are bioidentical. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. So are there other things besides the vaginal hormones and all those other things that you talked about that could help with libido, such as herbs or different foods, nutrients? Yeah, the nutrient thing, I got to tell you, I'm not, I don't have any really good clear data on nutrients really having that other than I think some of this is like body image stuff too. So if you're feeling funky in your body and we didn't talk about sleep, if you're not sleeping well, I mean, your head hits the pillow. You don't want to have sex. You want to try to sleep. So, you know, we didn't even talk about sleep is like a whole five podcast uh, series right there. So nutrients, mm, not so much for libido, but other than to support other bodily processes, the data on herbs, eh, not so great. I think maca is okay. I think maca is pretty good. That's probably the best one for libido because it can have some testosterone-like impact basically. And a lot of people who use the other botanicals to support their process, again, I think probably because they're feeling better in their body, then they feel more in touch with their sexuality. I, I, I don't think, I can't prove any of that, but I think that's probably more what the connection is. That makes sense. Okay, you just were talking about sleep, so let's move on to that topic because sleep does become an issue um, for those in perimenopause, menopause. And so why is that and how can we help them? Sleep is so difficult and elusive. And I will tell you, it is the topic that I, when I was working on the book, I was like, I just don't have the answer. <laughs> like I've been doing this for 22 years and I still don't know what to tell people, you know? It, and I, I, I hate to tell you that I did not find the answers. I mean, I think, I think it's, again, it's complicated. Some of it is definitely related to other menopause symptoms, so especially hot flashing. So if people are not realizing that they're waking up because of hot flashing, the hot flashing has got to be dealt with. That That's one of the big ones. But all humans as they age have more interrupted sleep. So if you have a man in your life that is sleeping in the same room as you, you probably are noticing that he's getting up to pee all the time too. Some of it is melatonin decrease. Our own melatonin that we produce decreases over time. Some of it is uh, disruption of melatonin and sleep cycles and circadian rhythms because of our lifestyle, because of our devices, sleep hygiene, which I, every single person I talk to about sleep hygiene knows exactly what it is. And 90% of them are just not doing it. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, you know, within our reach. I myself have been, I am also the same person. I do that too. Um, vasopressin, which is a hormone that is responsible for literally helping us to not go to the bathroom at night starts to decline as well, which is one of the reasons why we have to get up and pee. So it's it's complicated. And I will tell you that I think sleep hygiene and changing our nighttime behavior in general, including our eating and our drinking is one of the most important things we can do. Having a nighttime relaxation ritual. Not, and when I say drinking, I don't want people to restrict 
uh, fluid intake because that actually doesn't work and it's not necessarily so good for you. But alcohol specifically, I mean, alcohol at nighttime is just, you're not going to sleep. You're going to wake up. And also stopping eating, you know, a good two to four hours before you go to bed really does help. It helps with metabolism and it actually helps with sleep because some of what's going on uh, may be related to insulin and glucose cycles while we're sleeping. Some people will be waking because they are having changes in their glucose, their sugar, and that's, that's waking them up too. So some of this is something you, you know, you can hack yourself and some of it is stuff you really probably need to be talking to your doctor about. The other thing is sleep apnea. People, you know, who are snorers, maybe having sleep apnea, I can go on and on and on. I do think, you know, you mentioned uh, cannabis-based products. I'm a fan for the right person of a good cannabis-based product. Um, but I think people need to understand that the the way they consume it is very help, very important. So an edible or a gummy might be better because you're going to get a bigger release three, four hours in, which may help you continue to stay asleep. Because most of what I hear is waking up, not falling asleep. Right. Falling asleep is okay. It's waking up. And if you, you know, if you vape or smoke, it's more immediate and it may not last you. Same thing with tinctures, anything that you're getting right under the tongue and getting getting into your system immediately. I mean, that's a little bit of the Wild West. I don't think anybody has proven that sleep is really going to be better based on like, you know, using CBN or CBG. I mean, we, we get really in the weeds weeds <laughs> with this one, but <laughs> I didn't mean to say that, but that's funny. Um, but I'm interested in it. I'm really interested in how that might be useful for, for people. Right. Well, and I know they're doing a lot of research with those CBN, things like that, but yeah. sleep is a complex issue. Like you said, yes. there's so many different underlying root causes for people and it can all be different for each person. Exactly. So that is exactly. tricky. Okay. Let's talk about another symptom though of perimenopause and menopause. What about weight gain and muscle loss? I know this is one women complain about all the time. So is there some way to help this? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's real. It's really real. I think a, a very large study came out sometime during the last couple of years that was really, it was, it was problematic. You know, they looked at, it was a large population-based study and they looked at weight gain and aging and they decided, oh, it's not true. Women don't gain more weight in menopause. And it was like, okay, listen, folks, what are you even talking about? The reality is that we, we don't have to gain weight, but we're going to have to change our lifestyle in order to do it. Will the weight distribution change? Yes, it will. It will. The, the loss of your waistline is actually a real thing. Hormone therapy may assist with it. It is not, a, it's not going to fix it. You're alive in your body. Your body's going to change. That ha is how it goes. As we age, we lose muscle mass. Women and men do. Men, uh, maybe a little bit less than women, but a lot of that is linked to declining levels of testosterone that we talked about but it's also again it's lifestyle based so if you are a person like if you're addicted to your peloton awesome that's so good for your cardiac health but it's you need weight bearing and women in particular need weight bearing and resistance training in order to build that lean body mass to build the muscles to build the bone strength because we're also losing a lot of bone strength and that's very very important and i think people really looking at their diet and and adding more protein in high quality protein is super important. You're not going to build muscles without high, without high quality protein. The other thing that's really interesting though, and this is another large study that came out probably in the last couple of months, last six months maybe, and it looked at basically overtraining. And anybody who's in this age group and works with this age group knows this. You, you know, you are much more prone to injury 
we're not as flexible as we used to be. We really have to work at active recovery, stretching, things like that. So if you are someone who wants to go hardcore and go at it, you're actually not benefiting yourself. You are increasing inflammation. You're increasing stress on your body, which is going to make you hang on to weight. And you're going to hurt yourself. So the sweet spot seems to be twice a week, really good resistance work, weights, whatever, something like that. That's muscle building and two times a week cardio, not more. I mean, you do it, do you, but this study looked, it was really interesting. It looked at people in their sixties and they found women in their sixties. They found that the people who they compared one day a week of each two day a week of each activity, three day a week of each activity in terms of muscle building. I found this really fascinating really no differences, which I was shocked by. But in terms of weight management, the people in the middle did the best with weight management. So you got to get up and move. That's interesting. Well, I know there's some women that don't move at all, but then there are some women who love to work out six, seven days a week because it's good also for their mental health. And And I, I don't want people to stop doing that, but I want them to not, I want them to be cognizant of what they're doing and how they're doing it. I think variety is the key. But constant, look, fitness or exercise is the number one, two, and three thing that you can and should be doing for yourself today and for the rest of your life. You're getting the blood flowing. You're, like I said, increasing your lean body mass, including your bone mass. You're getting blood flowing to your brain, to your heart, to your genitals. Your mood is elevated because of the feel-good hormones that are released. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. You make different choices in terms of how you eat and when you eat. Um, your sleep is probably going to be improved. So there's like every study in the world shows that all of your lifetime risk factors are completely altered by exercising, but it's also just like common sense, you know, right. Do we need a study to prove that? (laughs) Right. Okay. So this weight gain and this muscle loss is mainly coming because of the loss of testosterone. I am, don't quote me on this because this is, I'm not a fitness expert. I'm an OBGYN, but my, my understanding that that, that is a very big contributing factor, probably how we're metabolizing is, is changing as well. Okay. Good to know. Previously in the podcast, you had mentioned that depression, anxiety, that those can be symptoms of menopause. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think, again, I think again, like every answer is it's multifactorial. I, I think some of it we discussed was the, especially in perimenopause, we see this big jump in like anxiety, panic kind of PMS symptoms. And that is pretty clearly linked to changes, declining levels of progesterone. We, we are pretty clear on that. I think it's probably also other pressures, issues, lack of sleep. We know that any human who doesn't sleep and get good quality sleep is going to have more mood disorders. So this is sort of adding to it. And then I think just sort of the pressure of our modern lives is um, creating more opportunity for mood disorders. But I think there's something, I think there may be a gift in it as well. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to like be paint too rosy a picture or be like a proponent of toxic positivity, but you know, difficult challenges and passages can be growth opportunities. And what I see a lot in midlife is people reassessing their life, reassessing their relationships, reassessing how they spend their time. Um, And sometimes what comes out is frustration. If you look at the cultural expectations 
on women that are very gendered um, and that we are really starting to look at and unpack and disassemble, they are that we are caregivers to everybody except ourselves, Mm -hmm. that we are supposed to martyr ourselves, that we're doing everything for everybody running around like maniacs. You know, that's not sustainable. And we can yammer, yammer, yammer about this, but a lot of people have to hit the wall themselves and feel it. And they have to make decisions that include their own prioritization. They have to decide that they matter and they count too. Sometimes that's just a very privileged position. There are people who really don't have choices, don't feel like they have choices, are working multiple jobs to try to keep themselves and their family afloat. But I think even just acknowledging that and understanding how damaging that can be and how much that contributes to mental health issues. If we don't say it out loud, I think we're really doing ourselves a disservice. And I think it's something that at least coming together as a community is really addressing and really helping. Because when you have other people that you can talk to about this and you're not isolating or feeling ashamed, you will have a different perspective and you'll have a larger pool of resources available to you. Right. That's really good info to think about. So if women are feeling mood disorders while they're going through menopause, do you have certain herbs, certain supplements? Yeah, or? yeah, I do. I'll, I'll tell you, my, my favorite is Vitex or Chasteberry. It does a lot of things. And here's the other thing. I, I always want to be careful with, with when I talk about botanicals and having respect for the entire plant, because a lot of times we want to use these plants as a substitute for pharmaceuticals. And sometimes they do work really well, but they are not pharmaceuticals, they are plants. So there's something called the entourage effect. We don't understand every little molecule and how it's interacting with themselves and with us when we consume them. We do know that there's probably some component in the plant that helps uh, our ovaries produce more progesterone in the second half of the cycle. And so that's probably helping with some of the PMS mood symptoms. It helps with other breast tenderness um, and other things that people tend to get with PMS. I love it for this. And I've seen it really work very well. I myself used it, but um, you know, plants are a little bit different than, than, I mean, obviously a lot bit different than meds. We're not taking one compound and like, you know, purifying the heck out of it and then like amplifying its effect. So people should, consider that when they're using things. It also will take longer for them to affect. I tell my patients who are using plant medicines or botanicals to give it 60 to 90 days where, you know, Prozac may take seven to 10 days. Vitex is probably going to take you two or three cycles to notice a difference. That's my hands down favorite for the perimenopausal PMS. I mean, there are reams of data out there on like all sorts of other, you know, rhodiola, ashwagandha, um, St. John's wort. Um, there's lots of data on sort of mo- things that have an impact on mood, but I tend to reach for the Vitex the most. Okay. That's really good to know. So I'm curious going into perimenopause or menopause, are there ways that we can help balance our hormones so that it's an easier transition? I mean, that's a great question. And like I said earlier, I, I don't, I think we need to sort of stop thinking about this in terms of balance and imbalance, because again, this is more, I like to see it as a transition, which is what it is. I think first of all, letting go of this idea that we are going to control it is very, very, very important. 
And um, I know that's maybe not what people want to hear, but sorry, that's what I have to say. When we want to micromanage it and we think, oh, I'm going to buy these five herbs and I'm going to fix it and I'm not going to feel anything. And that's just not real. So this transition occurs for a reason. We don't understand all the reasons that it occurs, but it occurs. And I think having that attitude and then, like I said, having a good team and, and having a good community is actually more important than any particular hack that I'm going to offer you. If you can enter into this time of your life, anticipating some of the things that we've talked about, and now we've talked about some of the potential solutions, you're not heading into it and blindsided and have no idea where to go for help. Now we have podcasts like yours. We have community. We have my book. We have there's the online menopause community is exploding. There's a lot of resources out there coming into it with an eye on fitness, movement, sleep, diet. The basics is the these are the most powerful tools you will have in your toolkit. And then you can, as needed, dip into the plant medicine into the holistic traditions, if that is something you like to do, into the hormone therapy, if that's available to you. And and also understanding that it's going to change. It's not going to be like one and done. You're going to go to the doctor, you're going to get a script, and you're going to be, no. I see my patients regularly every three to six months because I know this may be working for this quarter and next season it's not going to work anymore. we got to move on to the next thing. So having um, having that flexibility is very, very, very important too. I love all of that. Okay, so you mentioned, though, the hormone therapy, I should say. And I have listeners, followers who ask about this all the time. So let's just touch upon this. Are bioidentical hormones a good thing during menopause? Yeah, I think they're great. I mean, we talked about it. I think they're highly effective. And again, I want to remind people that bioidentical hormones are not necessarily something that you had to go and get tested 40 times this year and go spend a lot of cash money that you may or may not have. And uh, that the, the doctor has their own compounding pharmacy in their office. I mean, you don't, that is not when we, when you and I are talking about bioidentical hormones, that's not what I'm endorsing. I'm not, I'm going to leave that alone. I don't personally think that's the best way to do this. Bioidentical hormones, again, are hormones that are available commercially that are uh, biologically identical to what your body has been making. And you can find safe, effective, well-studied options in that area at your doctor's office with a prescription. That's a thing. I mean, you talked about them not testing. So how do you know if you need progesterone or estrogen or testosterone? Such a great question. And I'm going to blow your mind clinically by talking to you and listening to your story and your complaints. I'm not saying that I never test. I mean, if somebody comes in and there's something that's raising a red flag, or let's say you come in and you, you're you on testosterone, I may want to watch your testosterone levels because testosterone levels can be too high. Testosterone can cause problems. It can cause uh, not only side effects like acne, hair loss, but you know, in very high amounts, people feel amazing on them, but they also can be causing you know, heart disease and they can convert to estrogen and cause abnormalities in the lining of your uterus. Again, testosterone is amazing, but these things are powerful. And the people you work with who are you, you are getting these from, really, you should make sure you're vetting them. Like where are, just because your best friend's sister told you to go and she's got a pellet in her butt, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right way to go. Check it out. Make sure you see what their training is. 
Is this a person who did a weekend course and used to be an anesthesiologist? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say these things. This is what's out there. Right. <laughs> the North American Menopause Society, which I love and I'm a member of, but I don't think is perfect. I'm probably a little bit of a cowboy. There are, I think, about 2,000 of us. There are, I believe, 40,000 fellows of the American College of OBGYN or the American Board Certified OBGYNs. And I'm not saying that you have to go to an OBGYN who is trained through North American Menopause Society. But that gives you an idea of how few of us really have very good formal training. Um, that's not to say that people out there who are outside of that community can't be excellent at what they do, but please buyer beware. So yeah, I'm not a fan of people testing, 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 testing. I think you need to understand and they need to understand why they're testing. I was taught real old school at USC LA County Hospital many moons ago by real docs who put their hands on the patient, okay? And I it was ingrained in me. If you do a test, what are you doing with that lab result? Now, if someone is using it to tweak, 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 and you're coming back every three months to change your dosages, why? That's not individualized therapy. That's, oh, I'm trying to get you into this reference range, which by the way, they made up. There are no reference ranges for optimal sexual health in a postmenopausal woman. Show me the study. It doesn't exist. So I really want people to be very careful and intentional. It is mind blowing, but we are treating you as the human with your clinical symptoms because it's not a disease. It's a stage of life. How do you want to feel? What are your goals? What are your priorities? What are your health risks? What do you need? That's what I'm looking at. So there are a lot of women that don't feel well during this time of life. And so can they just go to their OBGYN and their OBGYN is going to know how to best help them or not necessarily? They need to be trained in this. I think that they should, if they have a good relationship with their OBGYN, they should start there because if they have a relationship, then they can have a conversation. And that person may or may not feel like this is really their wheelhouse. They may start them on some pretty standard fare that is not super well thought out, but you know, like the, the sort of standard of care. And this person may or may not have a lot of training and may not be that adept and may not be that nuanced at it. That doesn't mean they can't do it. I think people, it's very, it's a very hard time for women in a lot of ways, because what's happening, you're really hitting on something so important, Carolyn. We're all starting to talk about it now. And then like, well, where do we go? <laughs> because mm -hmm. if you look at TikTok or Instagram, you know, it's confusing. And, and there's a lot of like this, your doctor doesn't know what they're doing. I mean, your doctor may or may not know. That's absolutely true. But most doctors are pretty high integrity and will say, this isn't my thing, but so-and-so does it. Or you can take it into your own hands and you can go to the physician locator on the North American Menopause Society, you know, homepage, menopause.org and do some due diligence. The other thing is that not everybody can afford to do this. Not everybody has insurance even. And I'll tell you that insurance often doesn't pay for the medications that I think are the best ones. Um, it's it's very frustrating. I have This is what I do, yes, so I'm adept at it and I'm willing to work, work, work. And I think more of my colleagues than people might realize are out there willing to do this. But it is true, people need to be very... Um, very savvy consumers, and they do need to advocate for themselves. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely. I'm glad you explained all of that. As we wrap up here, will you just tell my listeners where they can learn more from you and where they can find your book? 
Oh, yes. Well, they can find me all over the socials. My handles pretty much everywhere are at Ask Dr. Suzanne, A-S-K-D-R-S-U-Z-A-N-N-E. Just look my name up or go to my website, thedrsuzanne.com. There is a link to purchase the book, um, but it's widely available. It's published by HarperCollins. So it's, you know, bookshop.org and Amazon and Kindle and all of that. And there's a really lively community out there. We're really having a conversation. It's the engagement has been tremendous. You know, my book, Menopause Boot Camp, was developed out of a menopause boot camp that I run. And um, those are going to be up and running periodically. But the cool thing is that I'm actually creating a certification program so that people can come and learn how to run their own boot camps. Because I feel, Carol Ann, that this is something that people need to be doing on their own in their own community in a way that serves their community's needs. I can give you the basics and I can give you the template and I can give you what information has worked and a format. But I think for me to think I'm going to go into your hometown and I'm going to understand what people need there is, you know, kind of arrogant. And I do see this as a grassroots movement. I've seen it in other areas, you know, I in, in obstetrics and, and prenatal care and in childbirth. We've seen a, a revolution because people took took hold of it and said, hey, this isn't working for me. This isn't what I want or need. And I need you to respond to what I need. And I need you to explain yourself to me. We need to have a conversation about this. And when people from the grassroots came into community hospitals and asked for more and asked for better, they got it. I love my colleagues. I love my organizations. I respect and appreciate them. But to think this is going to be a top-down change, I think is naive. And um, we know that we deserve more and deserve better. And people like you who are willing to have this conversation and educate your community are so important in this conversation, so important in helping us uh, care for ourselves, you know? So I, I want to thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything that you're doing and trying to educate people on, because this is an important topic. Um, menopause is going to happen. There, you can't escape it. And so we need to be more educated as to things that we can do to better help ourselves. So thank you for what you're doing. And on that note, do you have one last bit of advice to these women as to what to do to best prepare for menopause? I think, you know, just don't be afraid to say the word. <laughs> don't fall into the stigma of it and, and whisper or shut it out because you're afraid or you feel like it's some kind of a um, pejorative. I think the most powerful thing we can do um, is, like I said, change the narrative and not accept a narrative that is not our own. I think that's probably just good life advice. Right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I know the listeners have learned a lot and I'm excited for them to go find your uh, boot camps and your book and things like that. I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Oh, I think ooh, the best ingredient in life for me is to be where I am to be present where I am, even if it's uncomfortable, because that's really all we have. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, that's a really good one. Something to think about for sure. 
Well, thank you again for being here. Like I said, I know my listeners have learned a ton. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time and having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram. 